If you got a Bible, fine. Matthew chapter 5, we're going to be in verses 33 through 37. We're talking about truth-telling slash oath-taking. And I want to start this off by trying to unpack what I think Jesus is driving at. There are all kinds of dark forces in this world that are obvious, right? You don't have to be a philosopher studying the problem of evil to know that it's wrong. It's wrong that there are children all over the world that go to bed hungry. You don't have to be a theologian to know that sex trafficking is an offense to God and humanity. It's a force of decreation that destroys. Right? You, don't have to be, you don't have to be a philosopher to dig in to how evil and wicked it is, how evil and wicked it is to have racism on planet Earth where one people group thinks that they're better than another people group. Now, here's the thing. There are kinds of evil, there are forces of destruction and decreation all over the planet that are easy to name and easy to see. But what Jesus is doing in our text as he talks about letting your yes be yes and your no be no, Jesus is addressing a form of decreation, a form of destruction, a force of evil that's way more subtle than a lot of those forces. Jesus is talking about something that could fly under your radar. And yet, as Jesus addresses telling lies versus living in the truth, he's addressing one of the things that brings the most insecurity to human culture and to relationships. The force, the force of deception, the power to deceive yourself about reality the power to deceive other people. The lies that we believe and the lies that we tell have as much power to bring chaos into our lives, to take away flourishing from our lives as any of those other forces of evil that are out there. And we live in a culture that's just drunk on deception. If you haven't seen it, there's a fascinating documentary called A Century of Self, and a century of self unpacks the father of modern advertising, a guy named Edward Bernays. And if you've never heard about Bernays, he's fascinating. Bernays was the nephew of Sigmund Freud. What happened was cigarette companies in the 1920s were trying to figure out how to sell tobacco to women in a culture where it was seen as unladylike to smoke cigarettes. So they tapped in Bernays, and Bernays used a lot of theories developed by Freud the idea that people don't just make rational decisions, but we do stuff based on these subconscious drives and desires. Bernays used that idea to connect smoking with sex appeal. And so he decided to get Hollywood on board and he started working with the leading ladies of Hollywood, the sex symbols of the day, to get them to smoke on camera. Women wouldn't buy cigarettes, but here are these starlets, these beautiful women. So he connected beauty and sexual allure with smoking. He even started planting cigarettes in scenes of movies where sex was implied. So two people walk out of a hotel, and they wouldn't show the sexual encounter in the 20s, but they would show the woman lighting up after what was obviously a sexual encounter. He even went to women's marches, and he would hire actors and models, beautiful women, and he would hire those women to go to these women's marches and to light up cigarettes with reporters that were planted in the crowd to take photos of them. So what happened? Well, he used, he used that propaganda, he used that deception to sell something to people that was destructive for them, 
in a way that made them think that they wanted what was destructive. Now, I bring that up because that's just the air that we breathe as Americans. There are lies, there are lies all around us. We live in a culture where fake news is everywhere. Don't email me. If you're a Republican, there's fake news on your side. If you're a Democrat, there's fake news on your side. Don't email me. We are fast and loose with truth. Part of me wants to be really mean and say, if you get your news off of Facebook, you kind of get what you deserve, but I won't say that. (laughs) But we live in a cultural moment where propaganda is everywhere. We live in a culture where advertising is everywhere. People tell you lies all the time. This product will make you have the life that you dream of. This experience is what's missing in your life. And all those things are true and all those things are destructive and they certainly affect the way that we craft these fake PR images on social media. And this is not a sermon about social media, but I will mention, I personally know people in our city who are a hot mess and should not even give advice to their pets who have popular blogs telling you guys how to raise your kids. Why? Because we live in this moment where we're really good at deceiving not only other people, but we're good at tricking ourselves. And what I want you to see today is that lying is ubiquitous in our culture. It's not just corporations and advertise agencies that lie. It's not just propagandists that lie. Boyfriends lie. (laughs) Can I get an amen, ladies? Girlfriends lie. Husbands lie. Wives lie. Parents lie. And what Jesus does in this text is really profound. He does something in the Sermon on the Mount that's counterintuitive in our cultural moment. Instead of giving his followers a hot take to blast out in the world about the things that are destructive, he invites them into something way more painful, way more difficult. He invites them in to actually following Jesus where they're broken. Because the problem with lying is not Bernays and it's not fake news, and it's not Russian bots. All those things are real and problems. The problem with lying, listen, the problem with lying is that you and me as human beings have a really strained relationship with the truth. We lie to God. We lie to each other. We lie to ourselves. And what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount is not to raise up Christian activists that are engaging what's dark in the world while not engaging what's dark in themselves, what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount is he invites his followers into a counter-cultural kingdom where they're formed from the inside out. I worry about our church because it's so easy. It's so easy to be cause-driven Christians that have the latest cause and the next thing that's not just, and that's where we're really devoted and passionate more than we are devoted to Jesus. And make no mistake, like if you follow Jesus, Jesus will lead you into worthy causes, amen? Jesus will lead you to address things that are evil and broken in society. But Jesus, from the beginning to the end, is unapologetic when he points out that pushing back darkness is not just something that happens when Christians engage what's lost in the world. Pushing back darkness is something that the Holy Spirit does in the territory right here, your heart, your soul, and mine. 
So Jesus, as he addresses oath-taking and speaking the truth, your yes being yes, your no being no, Jesus is actually setting up a kingdom of truth in which he's not just one truth, he's the truth, a kingdom of light, not deception, and he's inviting his followers to be people that radically follow Jesus into the sobriety of truth that we so desperately need if we're going to have real relationship with God and with others. Because lying kills the security of our relationships. When you have to lie about who you are, how can you ever really be sure that anybody really loves you? When you lie to God, and we do, when you pretend to be somebody that you're not, and you hide stuff, and you cover stuff up, and you sweep things under the rug, how can you ever stand in his presence and know that the gospel is good news for you? How can you really live in Christian community if we don't speak the truth with one another? How can you have a good marriage if you only let your spouse see a part of who you are? So what Jesus is doing in this text is really profound. Jesus, who is the truth, Jesus, who is the light, is inviting his followers as a countercultural kingdom to be so formed by truth and the light of who he is that they actually speak the truth with God, speak the truth to themselves, and speak the truth with one another. We as a church really love pushing back darkness, but pushing back darkness is not something you do as you just blast out a 140-character tweet about something you think's messed up in the world. Pushing back darkness starts when we raise our hands and we say to Jesus, the problem with lying is not out there. The problem with lying is right here. And he invites you, he invites you today because of the cross to step into a kind of truth-loving, truth-loving where truth matters more than comfort, where truth matters more than looking good, where truth matters more than covering your tracks or playing games. He invites you into a kind of radical embracing of truth because truth is not just an abstract idea. Truth is a person. Jesus is the truth. And to follow Jesus is to grow as those that know the truth and are set free by the truth. So, Listen to the contrast as Jesus describes the devil and the kingdom of darkness. This is John 8, 44. He's speaking to Pharisees and he says, you are of your father, the devil. Your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, He speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now, I want to say something really sobering. All human beings are made in the image of God, but until you trust in Jesus, you are a part of the kingdom of darkness. And one of the key characteristics of that kingdom of darkness is an inability to tell the truth about God or to God, an inability to tell the truth about yourself, And what Jesus does by grace is instead of writing us all off as liars and leaving us to the just dessert that we deserve, what Jesus does that's so profound is through the cross and the resurrection, he transfers people from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear son. And he forms us 
to be able to be sober and honest about the things that are messed up in us, to be honest about sin, to be honest in relationship, to stop playing silly, trite games with God and with man. And that, I think, is the heart of what Jesus is getting at in this passage. So let me read it again and give you a few things that I think will help you understand it. Matthew 5, starting in verse 33. Again, you have heard it said of those of old, you shall not fare falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Don't take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So this is sort of lost in translation in 2019 because we don't have a culture where oath-taking is a big part of our society. Like you might swear on the playground, I swear on my mama or I swear to God, but this is not a big part of our culture. Like, but in Jesus's day, oath-taking was everywhere because truth was so often absent. Oath-taking exists because lies exist. And in Jesus's day, if you were a merchant, there was no Yelp for people to sort of see if you were going to do what you said you were going to do. And so merchants in the ancient world in their business practices would constantly swear. They'd swear by gods, they'd swear by buildings, they'd swear by their family that they were going to do what they told you they were going to do. The Roman god of merchants, Mercury, there would be festivals in Roman cities all over the world where merchants would come and they would make sacrifices to Mercury and they would literally ask Mercury to help them to deceive their customers for the next 12 months. So lying and oath-taking was everywhere in business. Lying and oath-taking was everywhere in relationship. Lying and oath-taking was everywhere in religion. And there were all these loopholes that people could use. Jesus rebukes the Pharisees because they would swear on part of the temple and then use that as a loophole to get out of doing what they said they would do. They'd be like, ah, I just swore on the gold of the temple. I didn't swear on the such and such of the temple. And so in Jesus' day and age, everybody would swear oaths because lying like it is today was prevalent in culture. So I think what Jesus is really driving at is not what a lot of people do in the church and they try to make this about, should we say the Pledge of Allegiance or not? I get that argument. I don't think that's the heart of what Jesus is saying. I think what Jesus is actually addressing is three things that are really important. One, Jesus is saying, and this is terrifying in the best possible way, Jesus is saying, one, everything you say is before the living God. He's the one, he's the one who owns Jerusalem and who is in Jerusalem. He's the one whose presence inhabited the temple. He's the one who's on every mountaintop. He's the one that you can't escape, that you can't get away from. Look what he says. I say to you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, he's there, or by the earth, for it's his footstool, he's there, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, he's there. Here's what Jesus is saying, like, you deceive yourself when you start to believe that there's not a living God who delights in truth, who is truth, and who abhors falsehood and deception. So he says, listen, man, like, you just can't get away from God. When you told that lie, 
the primary party that was offended with that lie wasn't the spouse that you lied to. It wasn't the child that you lied to. It wasn't the employer that you lied to. The primary offended party is the living God who hates falsehood because falsehood destroys. You can't get away from God. Second thing I think he's saying is number two. I love this. He's saying, don't write checks with your mouth that you don't have the power to cash. He tells the hearers on the Sermon on the Mount, don't take an oath by your head for you can't make one hair white or black. Like early commentators on this in the early church wrote some really weird stuff. If you want to read some great stuff and some weird stuff, read the Patristic Fathers, like, because they wrote some great stuff and then you turn the page and be like, well, that was just weird. One of the things they said about this verse is that Jesus is addressing men dyeing their hair. True story. And although I don't think that that's a best practice, it's actually not sinful. What Jesus is addressing is this. True story. It's <laughs> my opinions, my opinions. What Jesus is saying is, listen, in the way that you speak, remember that you are creation, not creator. There should be a humble sobriety when you make a promise because you don't control tomorrow. You can't even change the colors of your hair, man. You're not holding the world together by your power. So when you make boastful promises about what you will do or what you can do, there needs to be a real check in your gut when you start being able to claim, when you start pretending to be able to claim the kind of sovereign omnipotence that only exists in God. This is what James the Apostle gets at in James 4. Listen to this. He says, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town, spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Let those words sink in. You're a creature, not creator. There's a fragility to your humanity. You're not omnipotent. You don't get to decide what tomorrow's going to bring. You don't know what's coming down the pike. Therefore, he says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. Jesus is just calling it like it is. He's saying, listen, as a creature that can't make one hair on your head go from gray to black or black to gray, there should be a sobriety with your promise making. There should be a sobriety to your speech where you're really humble about what you say you will and won't do. And isn't this true? Like when people lie to their friends, to their family members, to their spouses to try to comfort them, and they make boastful promises, what are they saying? They're saying things only God can say. Oh, you're not going to get sick. Everything's going to be okay. Well, maybe, maybe not. There should be a humility to our speech because God's God and we're not. Now, the most important thing to take away is the last thing. Jesus is pointing out that you can't, you can't pretend that when you tell a lie that God's not there and offended. You can't speak like you're God. You need to be humble with your words. And the last thing he's saying that's the heart of the whole text, he's saying, integrity with your speech is salty and bright. 
integrity with your speech is salty and bright. And that, that was the whole idea of all these different vignettes that we're going through with the Sermon on the Mount. He does the Beatitudes, and then he describes his people, his church, as a countercultural outpost of God's kingdom that's going to bring the salt of Jesus and the light of Jesus to a dying world. And so here's what he's, here's what he's saying. When you let your yes be yes and your no be no, because anything beyond this is from evil, when you live with integrity with your words, you're pointing to the integrity of the God who saved you and who is forming you to look more like Jesus. Because Jesus tells the truth. Jesus doesn't just tell the truth. Jesus is the truth. So let me leave you with something that's really beautiful. People bring insecurity into relationship with deception, but a relationship with God is the only foundation for a truly secure life. Because here's what the Bible tells us that is true. God is the one whose words always and forever perfectly line up with his character. God never says something that's incongruent with who he is. Like, he's not a hypocrite. God doesn't talk out of both sides of his mouth. When God says something, it comes out of who God is, and God's word is so trustworthy because God's character is trustworthy, and you can't divorce the words of God from the character of God. They all go together in an integrated whole that is without lies, that's without crooked, bending deceptions and manipulations. Everything he says lines up with who he is. And this is incredibly good news because God makes profound promises to those that trust in Jesus. Profound promises. He doesn't promise you that you're going to be rich. He doesn't promise you that your marriage is going to be easy. He doesn't promise you that you're not going to get sick and one day die. But you know what he does promise you? He promises nothing can separate you from his love in Jesus. He promises you that the worst the world has to throw at you, the worst disaster, the worst disease is actually going to be redeemed by his power and by his grace to make you more like Jesus. He promises you that if you're in his hand, nothing can get you out of his hand. He promises you that you're known, that you're loved. He promises you that he is in the details of your life, that he's the one that numbers your days and he's counted the hairs on your head and he's the one that's working in your life and through your life, even the chapters that are dark and painful that you wouldn't go through again for a million dollars. All of that is in his hand if you belong to Jesus. Those promises, man, those are the promises that you can build a life on. If you build your life on the lies of culture, on the lies of propaganda, on the lies of all of the shifting winds of culture, your life is constantly going to be uprooted and devastated. But when your life is built on the solid rock of Jesus and the promises of God that are yes to you in Jesus, it's not that you're not going to cry you're going to cry. Jesus himself tells you, you're going to have persecution. You're going to have tribulation. The Bible has this one great letter to a group of Christians. And it says, hey, don't be surprised when fiery trials hit you as though something strange was happening. Life is hard. Marriage is hard. Parenting's hard. Work is hard. Having a body's hard. And yet in the midst of all that, God's promises 
completely line up with his character. His word reflects his character and flows out of his character. And that's a foundation you can build your life on. And here's what's so crazy about the word of God. He makes all these promises. He says all these things. And in the fullness of time, Jesus shows up. And how is he described? As the word of God made flesh. Meaning Jesus is the perfect embodiment of God's character. He's the perfect fulfillment of all of God's promises. Jesus is the will of God revealed. He's the beauty of God revealed. And to trust in Jesus is to be formed by the truth of of who he is, to actually live a life of integrity where you don't have to deceive yourself or those around you. So let me close with this. Because of the gospel of Jesus, because Jesus was lied to by Joseph or by Judas, because Jesus was lied about by paid witnesses in a sham court, because Jesus was falsely accused and wrongly charged, because of that, even though we've lied to God and about God and lied to ourselves and lied to others, because of the good news of the gospel, by his grace, you don't have to lie to impress people anymore. You don't. You don't have to be your own walking PR firm anymore because God chooses you. If God chooses you, you don't have to manage your image with all of this careful, integrate, in, integrate like precision and worrying and strength. Like, you don't have to do that. If God loves you and chooses you and other people are mad at you, you're okay. You don't have to lie and pretend to be somebody that you're not because God loves you and rescued you by grace when you were his enemy. You don't have to play religious games. You don't have to say you're okay when you're not okay. Because of the gospel, God's already outed you. (laughs) But you get that, right? The gospel is telling you that you are way worse off than what you ever realized. You're so worse off than what you realize that God had to take on flesh and die or you would have no future. So you don't have to pretend and cover up your mistakes and your sins. You can, you can be honest. Because of the gospel, you don't have to lie to avoid difficult and painful consequences at work, in your relationships, Do you know why? Because the two consequences that are the only ones that ultimately matter, the consequence of death and the consequence of judgment, because of Jesus, those two consequences have been removed. Death loses and judgment is the verdict because of Jesus. You're accepted, you're loved eternally. So this gives you profound, profound confidence to live in the truth, to be formed by the truth, to speak truth with one another, to tell God the truth, to tell others the truth. This is a way different way of doing life. So as we close this today, like I really want to grow. I want to grow in being honest. Like I hope you do too. I, w- I want to grow in living in the truth of God and walking out the truth of God. Um, is it amazing? Does, does anybody else find themselves at times exaggerating to look better than you are? Because the gospel, we don't have to do that. 
Does anybody have that weird experience where obviously sometimes we lie because we want to avoid tension or we want to protect ourselves? But does anybody ever have that experience where you walk away from a conversation and you're like, oh man, why did I just lie? There wasn't even a reason. In Jesus, we can be free to repent and to be honest. And you know what that'll bring about? When you live in the truth, it'll bring about a security in your relationship with God and a security in your other relationships because truth, truth actually does set you free.